The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. From Master Dogen's Treasury of the True Dharma I. <clears throat> the great way of all Buddhas, thoroughly practiced, is emancipation and realization. Emancipation means that in birth you are emancipated from birth, and in death you are emancipated from death. Thus there is detachment from birth and death, and penetration of birth and death. Such is the complete practice of the great way. There is letting go of birth and death and vitalizing birth and death. Such is the thorough practice of the great way. <clears throat> I think on Anga opening I spoke about these opening lines and that this is what has been transmitted down to us all these generations. The great way thoroughly practiced is emancipation. From generation to generation, <clears throat> country to country, language to language, culture to culture, person to person, mind to mind. And it is not difficult, this great way, for those who are free of false views and attachments. And so how do we practice this great way? Padmasambhava said, Make your view as vast as the sky and your attention in every moment, this finest flower. Anyone encountering the Dharma can practice it, can discover this emancipation, but it must be thoroughly practiced in one moment, and then another moment, and then another moment. And to do that, we have to start right where we are, in each of those moments, always. Anything else is a fantasy. Anything else cannot be thorough. And that's the great koan. It's the great koan, it's everyday practice. It's the <clears throat> vast and boundless luminous mind, and it's, in a certain sense, no big deal because it's just you and all things. And I have to think that that um, offering of something thorough, something wholehearted, is what has attracted us to this Dharma. You know, if it was the, you know, mediocre way of all Buddhas, <laughs> occasionally practiced half-heartedly, you know, to take a little bit of the sting off. <laughs> and yet, it's that very thing, isn't it, that, uh, that attracts us that is also our great challenge. 
And it's our great challenge, even though it's our very nature. And that's why we're just never going to figure it out. So give that up. So there's the birth of a day, birth of a moment, of an idea, of a newborn baby, of a season, of a monastery. And so if we imagine going back to 1980 on a day, I think that was a little bit colder than this. Snow still on the ground. Tadaroshi coming into this building with his friend, Neil, who... And to, to remember that Don Roshi was just looking for some, he wasn't looking for this. He was looking for a church, something much simpler, more modest, but although at that time was quite, would have been quite ambitious. And then coming onto this property, into this building, it wasn't just that he saw something, he felt something, he experienced something not only all of the life that had been had taken place in this building over all those years, but the building itself. This is a wholehearted building. There's nothing half-hearted about this. And to think about how having an idea, having given birth to an idea, to an aspiration, to a vision of something, and then encountering something different, something more, a greater possibility. I met with the, um, <clears throat> some of the online students doing continuous thread last night, and Tenfu was there. And so she spoke a little bit from her getting recovered bed. And um, she misses us as we miss her. And, um, and I was talking about how, you know, on that day before her fall, I hope you don't mind Tenfu talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> um, she had a plan. She had everything all lined up and done all of her preparation and was heading up here and beginning, or really stepping into the three months of Ango training and chief disciple and the whole thing. And then she fell. And I said, that's our practice, is to meet that. And in that moment, all of those well-laid plans, there must be shift. You have to shift and meet this reality. Birth and death. You know, I was thinking about how death, we think it often sort of talk about life as, you know, beginning and then reaching, you know, a peak, an apex, and then we start that long <laughs> descent. And, you know, there are lots of reasons why we think of it that way. But Emancipation means that in birth, in life, we're emancipated from life, within life, as life is taking place. And so if we think of that whole life span, that life cycle, as just living, 
And day by day, year by year, decade by decade, condition by condition, we're just living. And those conditions are changing as they are in their nature to do. And in one period, the conditions are such that we call ourselves young, and then we call ourselves reaching prime, and then we call ourselves middle-aged, and so on it goes. But those are just names. And they're not for nothing. They refer to things that are happening. They're convenient designations. But they're also all outside, all from a distance. And from within, there's just a, a continuum of moment-to-moment -moment experiences, as the Buddha said, that come into our awareness, are to be experienced, and then they pass because that's their nature, and they don't belong to us. They can't be possessed. And that practice is just that, that when we sit on this cushion within silence, within the precautions, within session, we're just living in this particular week, of this moment, this structure of our time. Before session, we live in a different moment, a different structure of our time. And after we move back into another structure of time, but it's all just living and meeting those changing conditions in every moment and discovering how to do that in such a way that we're emancipated, freed. And, Buddha, and Dogen says that, that the, the challenge or the invitation is to do that thoroughly, to not leave anything out. This is the complete practice of the, of the great way. And so all of those teachings about not seeking outside, right? What does that really mean? To not put another head on the top of the one you have if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill the Buddha. To not look elsewhere for what we cannot find elsewhere. There are some things we get elsewhere. Food from the field or from the store. Friends. But the thing, ultimate things that we look for, we have to find within. And so when we go looking elsewhere for something or someone, the Dharma teachings and the teacher always turns us back, turns us back, brings us back. Ultimately, they don't give us, the teachers don't give us answers because in a sense they can't. Only you and each of us can do that. And because they have, have and have always had complete faith in us as students of the way. In our capacity to discover this for ourselves. And our teachers know that this is the only true emancipation. That if, if somebody sat down and tried to explain everything to us, we would just have a bunch of words. In the Mahaparinibbana Sutta that we studied, we're studying this ango. That phrase, that, that teaching that I mentioned that the Buddha reiterates over and over during this, this very important final sutra of the Buddha. Such is virtue, such is concentration, such is discernment. Concentration nurtured with virtue is of great fruit, great reward. Discernment nurtured with concentration is of great fruit, great reward. 
The mind nurtured with discernment is rightly released, emancipated from the affluence of sensuality, of becoming, of delusion. Now, affluent is defined as a, a, a waste. Interesting, in a dictionary, it actually says a liquid waste discharged into the river or sea. I hope that is not as true as it has been in the past. But this waste that the Buddha has spoken of is not something gross, right? Although sometimes it leads us to do gross things. <laughs> we can think of it as just misused or certainly underused. And oftentimes very wrongly used life force, energy, potential, awareness, the gift of life. It's misusing it. It's not using it well. And so in Seshin, we, aren't we doing exactly this, what the Buddha is saying, such as virtue, such as concentration, such as discernment. And so we practice together. We have the Dushinji Code, which includes the precepts. We have the precautions. All of these different guidelines to help nurture our thoughts and our words and our actions within and without, so that we can move within silence, take care of what needs to be taken care of, do that in such a way that it inspires us, we inspire each other to go deep into our zazen, into our inward turning, and develop that fruit, that great reward of our mental stability, of our mindfulness and how that develops into concentration, because we're living well. We're living well, we're living well together, we're living well with ourselves, you know, reasonably, such that there's no great trouble, turmoil, conflicts. I mean, I think so often of how the, the enormous, enormous... Um, focusing of energies that, I mean, as individuals, as communities, as a country is, 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 has to be or is being directed towards things that, in a certain sense, we don't have time for. Because there are such greater urgencies. And that's what delusion does. That's like distraction on a mass scale. And so as we practice these, these qualities these, that we all have that help us to unify and live in accord and just work well within ourselves and with each other, our mind naturally becomes more subtle, right? Because it doesn't have all of that stuff it has to deal with, to attend to. It doesn't have all these fires it has to put out. It doesn't have to keep creating all of the contingencies to deal with our actions that require all of those contingencies. The landscape just becomes more clear and plain. Plain in a, in a wonderful way. Open. So then we can develop, deepen into that stillness and that samadhi, that concentration, 
from which we experience the world in a different way. Just straight up. We experience ourselves and the world in a different way. It is transformative. It's not permanent. It's a result of our concentration, of our practice. It's a result of how we're using our mind. But it is transformative. It shows us that clearly that the, the, the lack of that and all of the various states that we go through, those six realms, that we take as the world and that require so much energy, are all created. And then within that depth, which the Buddha said, of great fruit and great reward, the mind is nurtured with discernment. It can see. It can see clearly. It can recognize. Right? And this is not a conceptual, you know, intellectual process. It's not that we're just thinking more clearly. The thinking has dropped away, and we're able to just recognize what's right there in new and profound ways. And that leads to emancipation and realization, going beyond the conceptual, going beyond knowing. And so what I love about those teachings of the Buddha is how clearly he shows that all of this is so profoundly and intimately and necessarily interrelated. So the idea that, you know, that I can... you know, be sincere in my zazen, you know, for whatever amount of time I sit every day, and then I go out and I just create chaos, or I just forget. Right? I don't create chaos, but I just forget. Right? And I just go right back into all my old habits and get swept up in them. And then that night or the next morning, I come back and I do my thing on the cushion. And to think that that's going to lead to a integrated, whole, thoroughly practiced life is just not realistic. It certainly is better than not sitting at all, for sure. But it's sitting with huge gaps. Emancipation means that in birth, in birth, within birth, within life, we are emancipated within life. Within death, we are emancipated from death. In that sense, we are every moment that comes and goes, we are developing our capacity, we are training in how to live and die within those ever-changing conditions. How to see something arise, maybe you like it, maybe you don't. Maybe it's easy, maybe it's difficult. Maybe it passes quickly, maybe it lingers for a while. But to meet each of those and to be developing that natural capacity to just be. Emancipation is always here. It's always on the spot. There is no emancipation at a distance, over there, across the way. And so when we try to avoid it, which, you know, makes sense why we would try and avoid what is difficult, what we don't like, what we may feel like we're not capable of facing. It's understandable why we would try and avoid it, right? It just doesn't work, that's all. It never brings us closer. 
It does exactly the opposite of what the Buddha is saying. It doesn't bring forth those good qualities. It doesn't help the mind become more stable. It doesn't help us to see more clearly. And so we have to discover our capacity to first sit. I remember in earlier years when we were having conferences here with Soto Zen Buddhist Association, American Zen teachers, some of these collegial groups. And, you know, the Dharma centers were newer. We were all much newer. Teachers were younger and still figuring things out. And these conversations would have be had about training. You know, how, how do you train? How do you train? How do you, you know, how do you do the Zendo? How do you deal with this and that? And that, that our way of sitting, which is where we really ask people to sit in stillness, as well as silence, and to, you know, help people to take a posture that you can take and to take care of your body, but also to know that we have the capacity to sit with ourselves. And I remember, you know, being much younger, and Dido was the teacher, and I was just, you know, hanging around and <laughs> picking up on things. But, and I thought, do you not trust that people can do that? It's like, do you not ask for people to do that because you don't think they can? Because that's oftentimes what people say, oh, people can't sit like that. I said, well, I think they can because they are. And that that's, isn't that such an important thing that whoever is guiding us have faith in our capacity as being much greater than we know it is. But it has to be a real capacity, right? Not asking for unrealistic things so that we can discover that capacity, our patience, our forbearance, our ability to sit within discomfort and not turn away, and to have very powerful practices that guide us in how to do that, that lead to emancipation in that moment, in that body. I was reading an article that is written by a woman, a, a physician, who's a palliative medicine physician. She's talking about dying, working with people who are dying, and she was saying that in her residency, she was working with a patient who was dying of cancer, and she was concerned because she felt like he wasn't accepting the fact that he was dying. And it was clear to her that he was. All the signs were there. But he kept talking about going camping and going to a friend's wedding. And so she was really confused and upset about what to do as his physician, how to handle that. Because she felt like he needed to, she wanted him to face it so that he could prepare himself, prepare his family, but he didn't seem to be doing that. But she, so she kept waiting for the signs that he was ready. And she had ideas about what those signs might be. He doesn't want to continue treatment. He, he asked for this. He, but he wasn't giving those signs. And she was afraid, as she says, as many physicians are, that if she talked about death before he appeared ready, she might take away his hope, make him give up, or send him into anxiety and depression. And she said, by waiting for him to act in ways that I understood as acceptance, I thought I was being compassionate and sensitive. Of course. That makes sense. And then she said, as she continued to learn, she said, I've learned that trying to find immutable evidence of someone's readiness to die is like trying to wrap your arms around a ghost. She began to 
understand that these ideas, that first of all, everyone has to accept their death, that that's a prerequisite, before they can know that they're dying, or be told that they're dying, and that that acceptance has to look and like take certain forms, recognizable forms. And she began to realize, what if that's not true? <laughs> she said, reconsidering what we think acceptance means and whether or not it will come to pass requires loosening our expectations of those who are dying. And I would think the people who are working with the people who are dying also have to loosen their expectations. She says, to be able to honestly talk with each other about death, we must first understand why we expect dying to demonstrate, the dying to demonstrate readiness in the first place. Now, of course, it makes sense that we would, you know, it would seem optimal or better if a person was accepting because then it's going to be easier to work with. But there is a reality in front of this person, in front of each of us. Somebody asked me just recently, because of birth and death, the theme and the fascicles and the Maha Parinibbana Sutta, they, they said, are you planning on going somewhere <laughs> or dying? I said, well, I am planning on dying, but I just don't have a date. <laughs> <laughs> what does readiness mean? that it's easier to search for readiness than to process what its absence means. Distilling human experience into supposedly self-explanatory concepts like accepting death becomes a bandage that we apply hoping the raw emotion about death won't bleed through. We want neatness and containment, not the spill of grief. She said, but death is never neat. Maybe a death could, should be defined by how well and honestly we care for the dying, not by their performance on our behalf. Expecting them to make death a process full of insight and peace only limits our full emotional and spiritual participation in their death. By relinquishing the idea of neatness, we can have a conversation about what the dying truly need. She said at that time she wasn't ready to confront her expectations of her patient. Doing so would have required dismantling the myths she had about herself as a steward of hope. My expectations, she said, were a self-aggrandizing way of holding him at a distance, fearing that he couldn't handle a conversation about death. And then she talks about how she became, as she was more and more sort of, preoccupied with this and concerned about this and not knowing what to do. One day she was with him and he said something was going on and he said, are you okay? And she said, well, I've been meaning to talk to you about something. She said, I, I'm worried about you because every time I see you, you're losing weight and you seem less like, less like yourself. And he said, oh, well, that's because I'm dying. <laughs> she said she was stunned. <laughs> And she struggled to know what to say. He took her so off guard. And she said, I'm so sorry. And he said, it's not your fault. <laughs> he said, my father died in my arms. My wife died in my arms. It's just my turn now. And she said, I feel bad that I didn't talk to you about this sooner. 
I thought you'd be upset or, or that you weren't ready. And he laughed and said, ready? He says, I've wrapped my head around you being dead, certainly. Not sure if I'll ever really be ready. It's not like packing a bag and standing outside waiting for a taxi. (laughs) (laughs) And I just thought that that was, again, one of those wonderful, um, you know, teachings about the way things are from beyond the realm of Buddha Dharma, right? Not necessarily a Buddhist practitioner, not a Buddhist story, but so resonant with the teachings. Trusting the capacity of the person who is, has the reality that they are facing, whether they are consciously, actively, easily, or not. That to face that reality, even if it's difficult, even if there's resistance, even if there's grief, opens the door to something better. And it's just being able to hold those emotions. I remember when Senjin Majaku was having her surgery years ago. I was at the hospital, and I was out in the hallway just sitting on the floor. There were no chairs or anything, just waiting for her to come out of her surgery. And I'd passed a room down the hall where uh, there was a a lot of people, a a lot of big family in the room around a very elderly woman um, who was the patient. And at a certain point, a young fellow came out. And I don't know if she had just passed. I don't know what had happened. But he came out, and he was just so grief-stricken and was sobbing and sobbing. And then in one moment, it shifted to anger. And he just exploded and just started tearing things apart. And I just watched and I said, yeah, it's so hard to hold that grief. It's so hard to hold it here and let it stay here. And to just step into that and own it gently or not. And it, we all have different strategies in those moments of how to not. And too many of us. And he, in that moment, acted out. Right? Seek and destroy. And so the Buddha says, so we have to open the windows and doors and let the effluence pass through. Dogen says, thus there is detachment from birth and death and penetration of birth and death. This is the complete practice of the way. There is letting go of birth and death and vitalizing birth and death. And this is so important that in letting go, we allow the vitality, the vibrancy, the aliveness of that thing that we're letting go of, which is always there. And always alive and vibrant, but in our awareness, in our perception, gets dimmed and dampened. And so when we let go, that which we let go of becomes vitalized. Isn't that why? It must be why. When we practice, I mean, why is it that practice leads to joy? (laughs) To... Various experiences of buoyancy 
of release, of uplift, of opening. Because when we face things as they are, we're standing in alignment. We're standing in harmony and accord with the way things are. And even if they're doing, we're doing that under stress or duress, or we're resisting, but we're doing it to the best of our ability. If we pay attention, there will be subtle signs, subtle shifts of that moving into something that is more free, that is more emancipated, in which all of that tangled energy is able to to move. But we do need skills. We need ways to do that. Because without that, we'll, we'll just tend to go with strategies, old strategies. And in a certain way, let's not, you know, let's have respect for those strategies we learned as young people, you know, to deal with things we couldn't understand, couldn't control, things that might have been extremely difficult, painful. And, you know, we're not getting guidance. Nobody's telling us what's going on necessarily or how to meet it. So we figure it out. We figure something out because that's the stuff we're made of, right? Every living thing has evolved to live and survive and to find adaptive ways of doing that. And so whether it's suppression, denial, avoidance, going to sleep, living in fantasies, living in books, whether it's acting out, going on the offensive, they're strategies. And if we keep doing them, that's because to some degree they've worked. And so in a way, as adults, as practitioners, as we encounter those, even though the situations in which they were born have often passed, but they, those habits still have life, in a way we should have respect for those because they were the, you know, the, 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 the best means we could come to as, as young people, right? To adapt to, to learn how to live within and to, you know, try and get whatever we needed. And so when Bodhidharma says having reverence is to have humility for our delusions and reverence for our true self. You know, to to have respect because if we don't, then we're not respecting ourselves, right? Those aspects of ourselves that are still functioning and are not necessarily helpful, but they're part of how we got here. And so in letting go everything becomes more vitalized. And detachment is one of those words that can be so easily be misunderstood. The etymology is from a 16th century French word, which means to reverse the attachment. Kind of interesting. So reverse it, turn it around. From grasping to releasing. And the detachment is not aloof or distant or cold or uncaring. We often sort of, we can think of it that way. In Buddhism, it doesn't mean that at all. That's, that's where we're coming from. That's what we're trying to shift. It's just not grasping. It thoroughly practiced. And when there's no grasping, 
As the grasping drops away, the anxiety, the hope, the fear, the expectations drop away. And now all things can be allowed in our minds to be what they are. I mean, if we just give words to what we do, you know, when we're trying to deny something, is we're trying to say, no, this is reality, but I don't accept it. I don't accept it, right? Even though I don't have control over it. Well, just from a logical perspective, how is that going to work out? Right. You can have the green light to cross the road and be in the middle of the street and a truck's bearing down you, and you say, I don't accept this situation. I'm in the right here. The truck should stop, but it may not. So you're right, but you're dead. <laughs> That's why Dogen says, to encounter the Dharma, we have to yield. Last night with the group, I was thinking of that image of the gourd. You know, it's often used in the teachings that there's a gourd sitting on the first surface of the water. If you push it down, it just rolls back up, right? Just turns over, rolls right back up. Push down again, it just, that's what it does. And so we turn, return to this seat again and again and again to, to roll back up. <clears throat> Dogen says, know that there are innumerable beings in yourself where there is birth and death. Quietly reflect over whether birth and all the things that arise together with birth are inseparable or not. Well, we know what the right answer to that is. No, they're not separate. Right? Every good student knows that. But what does that mean? Right? I'm sitting here, you're sitting over there. There is two. But how in two is there no duality? What do we do with all these innumerable beings within ourselves? A student which came to the teacher and said, please liberate me from my suffering that is binding me. And the teacher said, well, what is it? Who is it that's binding you? And the student said, well, no one is binding me. And the teacher says, well, then what is it that you need to be liberated? This teaching of birth and death is about every blessed thing, about every blessed moment. And because they're non-dual, when we come closer when we learn how to live, to be born well. We're at the same time learning how to die well. When my dad was getting close to his death, he had cancer and he was in a moment that I was with him, he was very frightened. And he looked at me and said, I don't know how to do this. I said, do what? He said, die. And I said, well, right now you're alive. Right now you're alive. And I said, I think maybe if you just keep doing that, then when the moment of your actual death comes, you will know what to do. Thank you for listening. To find out more about ZMM's programs, retreats, and residency, please visit us online at zmm.org.